1: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
2: Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with the Washington Post. Hey, it's
3: Dossie.
1: Wanted to pick your brain on the Trump. Hi, my
2: name's Jenna Johnson. I'm.
1: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November fourth. Today, auctioning guns in American schools. Iran's history with hostages, and new physics for a potential cosmological crisis.
2: Out of the blue, I got an email from a parent in Kentucky.
1: Beth Reinhardt is an investigative reporter for The Post.
2: Saying, I'm reaching out to you because I see you're an investigative reporter, who's written about the NRA, and I'm really upset because I saw a flyer for this fundraiser at my kids' high school. And I went on Facebook and saw that they held this fundraiser at the high school last year, and there were guns in the gym. What do you mean guns in the gym, like guns on display? Guns on display in the gym, actual firearms all over the bleachers that people could bid on, and they're being raffled off to raise money for Friends of NRA.
1: So it was like a gun auction at a school.
2: Gun auction at a school, exactly, with Mm. actual firearms and guns. And what this parent, whose name is Shannon Myers, went on to say is she was particularly upset because just 80 miles away, a year ago, there had been a mass shooting at a high school. So because these parents had raised concerns before the event about there being guns in the gym... They changed the setup this year. So instead of having the actual weapons on display, they had pictures of weapons, and people could pick them up later at a gun store.
1: So this was a fundraiser by a group called the Friends of the NRA. This foundation, it is different from the actual National Rifle Association.
2: So Friends of NRA is the fundraising program under the auspices of the NRA Foundation. That's the charitable arm of the NRA. The foundation and the NRA are intricately connected, though, in that they share employees, they share office space. The foundation gives the NRA money to use for educational programs. So there is a connection. The difference is that donations to the foundation are tax-deductible, and That money can only be used for education and outreach and safety and not for political purposes.
1: So they're basically collecting money and using it to educate people, young people, about gun safety. So the money
2: from Friends of NRA events, which occur all over the country all the time, half of that money goes to the foundation to use for national education programs and the other half goes into a pot for youth programs. You know, the 4-H club, the archery club, the trap shooting club, mm-hmm. the JROTC club. Those kind of groups can apply for grants from the foundation. And that's where the other half of that
1: money that's raised at Friends of NRA events goes. And how much money are we talking about that is coming from this NRA nonprofit that is being funneled out to to schools around the country?
2: Millions of dollars. Not all of it goes to schools. Some go to, you know, your Boy Scout troop or some other kind of community group. So did you go to one of these fundraising events put on by Friends of NRA? So our colleague Nina Satija and a freelancer in Oklahoma attended an event at a vocational school in Idabel, Oklahoma. Similar in that they were raffling off weapons. In Oklahoma, however.
0: If
4: everybody had if you bought a three hundred dollar
0: package or, or, or if you had make sure you got your gold ticket in. If everybody had here? If you don't, then raise your hands, because we're gonna crawl that winter.
2: Where parents did not object, they had the actual weapons displayed there.
0: Here's all the guns that we've got left over on this table.
2: And the mc of the auction held up rifles and, and pistols as he was raffling them off.
0: we got this beautiful timber. It's the apartment. It's a very, very nice rifle. Beautiful wood grain on it. Fluted bolt action. And the wood, the wood on it is absolutely beautiful. Have-
1: that feels like... Pretty strange optics to me. The fact that there's so much attention about school shootings that have happened all over the country and that the NRA is in a particularly precarious position in terms of how they navigate the fact that a lot of people blame school shootings on the mission and message of the NRA. And then they're going into schools and having these events where people are holding up guns, raffling off guns in a school gym. And I can imagine that that probably rubs a lot of people the wrong way. It does, and that's why
2: in the last two years since the shooting in Parkland, that was in early 2018, since then we've started to see pushback against Friends of NRA events where there's been pressure on venues not to hold the events. I should add that not many of these events are held in schools. We found, you know, a few. Mostly they're held at civic clubs, at Kiwanis clubs, at community center, And either way, they have been drawing some negative attention.
1: I also wonder what it's like for some of these groups that receive this money from this nonprofit arm of the NRA. I imagine that Boy Scout troops or archery clubs or 4-H clubs, like, that, they might not have a lot of access to money to fund their activities. And it must be a difficult decision for them to make to decide whether or not they're going to continue to accept money from this group. We've only seen a few school districts
2: reject NRA money and say, you know, even if it's going toward one of our clubs, we're not going to accept that. We've seen that in just a few cases in the school district where Parkland was, in Denver, which, of course, is near Columbine, and in a few other school districts, but mostly Every year, hundreds of clubs, organizations are accepting this NRA money. And when you talk to the
1: NRA, what did they say about the fact that there are people like this parent who reached out to you who are really concerned about what the Friends of NRA does?
2: So first of all, the NRA feels strongly that they're not contributing to school shootings. That's not something that they feel like they need to apologize for. In fact, you know, their response to school shootings has been the opposite of defensive. They've said, we need to arm teachers. We, you know, we need to have more guns in schools. So, you know, they've stressed that most of the events take place outside of schools. They say, you know, they follow the rules. Though in Oklahoma, once we called the school district to let them know about this Raffle, my colleague Nina Satija was told, oh, wait, they didn't have permission to display guns. They forgot to ask or should have asked.
1: And is it legal to have gun raffles in schools? I can imagine in a lot of school districts, it's actually illegal to bring guns on campus.
2: That's true in Kentucky. You're not allowed to bring guns on campus, but there are exceptions. And one of the exceptions are gun shows approved by the school board. And in this case, the Friends of NRA event had been approved by the school board. The regulations are going to vary from state to state. But when you do have raffles, you fall under
1: gaming regulations. As you pointed out, you've done a lot of reporting on the allegations of financial mismanagement at the NRA. What do we know about how this nonprofit arm of the NRA fits into the overall finances of of the
2: organization? So as I said, Friends of NRA is under the auspices of the NRA Foundation. And in recent years, the NRA has been heavily, re- more and more relying on the foundation for money. The NRA has been spending more than it's taken in. And so they've borrowed money from the foundation. They've received an increasing amount of money for educational grants. As I mentioned before, These two entities share resources, they share employees and office space, and the NRA has been seeking an increasing amount of money in reimbursements for that from the foundation. So they're leaning on the foundation more
1: and more. What do you think was your big takeaway from hearing about Friends of NRA and what they're doing around the country? I think a lot of
2: people are unaware that there are these kind of grassroots fundraisers. When you think of the NRA, you think of sort of big money, the gun lobby, or you think of, you know, wealthy conservatives writing very big checks. But actually, there's this whole grassroots component where there are volunteers collecting donations, and they're doing it because they believe that, you know, kids need to be taught how to use guns safely. You know, it's an important part of the culture there, shooting sports and hunting. So this is a real community type of event is the way it's viewed by the supporters. What I also learned when I was in Kentucky, where gun ownership is so common, gun raffles are not an unusual way for school clubs to raise money, even clubs that have nothing to do with guns, like the cheerleaders or the softball team.
0: What we've done here is, if you look in the program, what I'm most proud of We've given over $3 million to 4-H shooting sports right here in this state with this money that we raised in 26 events,
1: Okay. Yeah, that, that when we think about the role of the NRA in this country, that it's not just as a lobbying organization, that it's not just putting pressure on politicians, that they really have support in a lot of small communities around the country because they're a big part of how regular kids groups, sports teams, community groups, how they can continue running. And, you know, what's very strategic
2: is to support these types of activities because they're grooming the next generation of NRA members, the next generation of Second Amendment activists who are going to Pay NRA dues and buy guns and support the industries that the NRA is pretty intricately connected with.
0: Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for being here tonight. I kind of want to get a show of hands. Do we have any new attendees? Any uh, people that's here that's never been to a fringe of NRA banquet? Raise your hand. We got a lot of people. Let's give them a big round of applause. Thank you for coming tonight.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks.
0: Uh, And if you're not a member, hey, I just encourage you to join. It's a great organization, not founded on politics, founded on gun safety and education, marksmanship. Then all the programs that we do, which sometimes is never, ever talked about by the media or any of them about what we really do.
5: The relationship between the United States and Iran has been very complicated for the last 40 years.
3: Good
1: evening. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran has been invaded and occupied by Iranian students.
5: The The impetus for that complication was the taking over of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran by Iranian students on November 4, 1979.
1: Some reports say as many as 90 Americans may be involved. Others say as few as
5: 35. They took these 52 American diplomats hostage and held them for over a year. That story ended with a very dramatic release in 1981.
0: They're free, Mr. President. They're free, Mr. President. We've had press reports that they're free. They're free. Uh, we've had press reports. What do you have to say about that? What do you have to say? About There's only one thing to say. Thank God. Thank God, he said. Thank God. Sir
5: but Iran has continued to take hostages ever since.
1: This is Jason Rezaian. He's a columnist for the Global Opinion Section and the former Tehran bureau chief for The Post. In 2014, while Jason was doing work for The Post, he was arrested by Iranian officials, imprisoned and slapped with bogus charges of being a spy. He was detained for a year and a half before the U.S. negotiated his release. And while he was in prison, Iran detained another foreign national on similar charges of espionage. That person was a Lebanese citizen and a U.S. resident, Nizar Zaka.
4: He's on my way back to the airport, a civilian car came by and stopped me, I blocked the, the road, stopped me, I blindfolded me and threw me in a 2x4 cell, which I spent four years since then in, in Iran even prison
5: Nazar is a Lebanese citizen and a permanent resident of the United States he's lived in this country his entire adult life He went to high school college here and he works in the internet activism space
4: I went to Iran in September 2015 because I got a, an invitation from the Iranian vice president for women Affairs Mrs. Mulaverdi
5: which is a cabinet-level position in the Iranian government. He was invited to speak at a conference, which he did. And when he traveled there, he went with a valid Iranian visa with full permission of the Iranian government, gave his speech. It was very well-received. People lined up and took pictures with him, and it was uh, a cause of great celebration. A lot of people thought that Iran was coming to a period of more openness in their relations with the rest of the world. That was on the second day. On the third day, as he was being taken back to the airport, his car was stopped. He was arrested, blindfolded, handcuffed, and taken off to prison. Hmm. Uh, That was in the fall of 2015, uh, we're now in the fall of two thousand nineteen, and he was just released this summer
1: oh wow and and what did they tell him about why he was put in prison what the i mean were there any charges
5: look there's always a charge, but it's window dressing right The idea is that You've been arrested for some kind of crime against Iran's national security.
4: So they never told me I am a spy. They always said I am, uh, I am cooperating with an enemy government, that the U.S., the United States of America is the enemy, and I am cooperating with an enemy.
5: It's just a way of singling that you are somehow deemed a threat. And the regime doesn't actually think of these people as threats. They think of them as bargaining chips that they can use later in negotiations with world powers.
1: So when you say that, that people are used as bargaining chips by Iran, what exactly do you mean? Like, what are they being bargained for?
5: Oftentimes, it's a straight prisoner swap for Iranians who are being held on various violations in other countries. But we've also seen it tied to the release of assets— Iranian assets frozen in other countries. That was the case when the hostages from the embassy were released in 1981. And other sorts of political concessions. Arms, you know, it could really be anything that's intended to to further Iran's agenda. And you can often look at these as part of larger package deals.
1: So do you have a sense of how many people have been held as hostages by Iran?
5: This has been a problem that has gone in waves since 1979. And the latest wave started essentially with my arrest in 2014. Since the nuclear deal between Iran and world powers was signed in the middle of 2015, there's been at least 30 cases of foreign nationals being held on these types of charges. Currently, we know of 13 one of the better-known and more prominent cases is that of Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe.
3: So Nazanin went to Iran for a family holiday with Gabriella, who was then one of the three-quarters. It was Iranian New Year at the time, and she'd been every year to partly just be part of that celebration and all the family comes together, and then to go around and join in the different family meals and um, show off her, her daughter being that bit bigger.
5: This is Richard Radcliffe. He's Nazanin's husband. We spoke to him in London.
3: So, Nazanin was arrested at the airport, and, and footage has since been released by the Revolutionary Guard. She was told there was a problem with her passport and she was going to be taken away. Um, Gabriella was given back to her grandparents, who were there to see off Nazanin and Gabriella, and she disappeared. Uh, and we didn't hear anything from her for a number of days afterwards.
5: Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe was born in Iran, emigrated to uh, the UK as a young adult. Uh, met and married a man named Richard Ratcliffe, and they had a little girl named Gabriella. They traveled back to Iran several times to visit Nazanin's family in Tehran. They had made four trips back and forth to Iran without incident.
3: Nazanin works for the Thomson Reuters Foundation. That's a a charity in London. They do journalism training. They do various things around anti-slavery and they do various things around women's rights. So her job would be to write reports for donors and uh, book journalists to go and do stuff. Um, Because she always wanted to go back to Iran, she made sure there was no work connection there.
5: Nazanin has been in Evin Prison, where I was, for the past almost four years. Gabriella, just earlier this month, returned to London to be with her father. But imagine that. I mean, you know, you're a young mother who's, you know, been separated and imprisoned, separated from your entire family, from your entire life.
3: They obviously put pressure on and said, listen, your um, husband has abandoned you and he's taking your daughter away and he's. we've got photographs of him with other women. And generally trying to make her feel that that she had been involved in a series of terrible things, that she was complicit in in the enemies of Iran, and and that she needed to make amends.
5: You're not sure whether your daughter should stay with your parents nearby so that she can come and visit you or go home to, to her father who's struggling to get you out. But the more important element of that story is that there was absolutely no evidence that she had done anything. She was accused and convicted of fomenting the soft overthrow of the Iranian regime. What does that mean? I, was, that I don't even question. know what, what it means. Mean? I don't know what it means. They don't know what it means. It's a pretense to hold her.
1: And in these cases like do they provide any evidence or do they do they like what do how do they even justify these charges and these convictions.
5: Oftentimes it's a, a photograph or some sort of innuendo about a place where the accused worked for a period of time. Uh, for Nazanin, she worked for the Thompson Reuters Foundation. Because it's uh, related to Reuters, the insinuation was that somehow she was a journalist and, and working in that field, which is, there's, you know, we live in 2019. There's a a thing called the internet where you can find out all sorts of information about literally every person in the world. There's no sign that she was doing journalism in Iran or even doing work related
4: to Iran. In Nazar's case, they wanted to find something to blame me about. But all what they had, they had picture from Facebook that are public for anybody who can see. And they tell me, "Why are you taking a picture with this person? Or why are you taking the picture? It was a picture?" There was a picture of
5: him at an event here in Washington with Colin Powell. And they look at that and say, and "It's
1: just like one of those photos that you take when you meet a famous, a famous person, person, right? Like, Stand here, someone's going to take a photo of us together." Exactly.
5: And you know, Nazar's response is, "Of course, I'm going to take a photo with <laughs> with with Colin Powell. I'm a Lebanese guy living in America. <laughs> I take selfies with famous people. That's what we do." <laughs> um, and you know, uh, it, it is that laughable. It's ridiculous, and it's a pattern that has become increasingly consistent, and we see it over and over again.
1: So for Nazanin's family, what is it like for them as they're trying to get her out?
5: So Richard is all alone in London trying to do whatever he can to bring his wife home. Uh, Her family, her parents are all in Iran. And I, I think that Richard has been, from the very early stages of Nazanin's detention, out in front of this and refusing to back down and refusing to be muzzled, although different people in the British government have tried repeatedly. I mean, he's outlasted. His wife's hostage situation has outlasted a couple of different British governments now, right? I mean, I think they're in their third one at this point. And every time he has to build a new relationship with mm. these people and every time you know they'll tell him it will be better if you just be quiet and every time he says I'm not going to be quiet you're going to have to deal with me I'm going to show up at your doorstep until you bring my wife home you just
3: end up in this place where you're just kept at the end of your tether and, 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 and left to feel so helpless and so isolated and and you know I, I've had plenty of phone calls where she's just cried the entire time um, now it, it's not consistent. There are days where she's better than other days. Um, but the profound unfairness, it's the profound arbitrariness of the whole thing that, that actually this, this could be over tomorrow, but it, it could go on forever. And There's nothing she's done to get herself in this place. There's nothing she can do to get herself out of this place. Um, it, it, one of the things that she, she's at this point now where she she doesn't dare hope for anything anymore
5: i think for richard it's been a very lonely endeavor uh, but he's had a lot of a lot of support right i mean there is currently a one-act play about Nazanin's plight that you you can see in london Uh, for a time her picture was on the side of uh, the buses in london i mean you know they've gathered millions of signatures calling for her release but ultimately, it hasn't come to the conclusion that it needs to uh, yet. and I, I feel that there's a sense of desperation there. How, what else can one family be forced to endure on such a public level? It resonates very deeply with me, obviously. Uh, but but I see it again and again with all of these families. There's this period of time where you're not sure what to do, do I engage publicly, What's the office in my government that I call to try and get help from? Do I trust what they're telling me? Are they giving me advice that is designed to help me or to make their jobs easier? Hmm. And I don't want to spoil anything, uh, but generally it's the latter, not the former, and and it requires, you know, getting a, a mobilization of people and resources and advocates celebrities the media your local representative friends family and 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 other people to buy in on this and say you know what this is this one person's fate is that important and that doesn't always happen so
1: for people who are essentially taken as hostages by Iran i'm curious and i'm curious from your case too what is it like knowing that you're kind of a pawn in global politics, that the reason you're in prison is not because of something that you did or even something that you're truly, honestly being accused of doing, but just because you're valuable?
5: Well, I never felt valuable uh, when this happened to me. And I can tell you that most of the people who find themselves in this situation don't feel valuable. And it's sort of shocking to us to think that anybody would place so much attention and, and investment in taking us into custody. But the thing about it that is the hardest, I think, and this was certainly the case for me and others who I've spoken to, was the idea that we'd been forgotten about by the outside world. Uh, in, in my situation, obviously, working for the Washington Post uh, created a situation where my name was pretty prominently known for quite a long time until I was released But that's not always the case. So, you know, I I have uh, advocated for shining as much light on these cases as often and as much as you can wherever you can. A lot of people will say, no, keep it quiet. I say, hey, you know what? People need to know the hostages' names, whoever they are, wherever they come from. Otherwise, uh, there's very little hope that the home government is going to do anything to bring them back. So it's, it's a very strange situation where you find yourself stuck in the middle of this big geopolitical rivalry between two countries. And your only hope of getting out is uh, the, these two conflicting sides coming together in an agreement and hoping that you're part of that agreement. Odds aren't very good.
1: Jason Resign is a global opinions columnist for The Post. He reported the story with opinions graphics columnist Sergio Pisania and senior video producer Kate Woodsum. And now, one more thing, a crisis
6: in cosmology. For 90 years that the universe is expanding, you may remember the moment in the movie Annie Hall, where the young Alvy Singer is despondent over the expansion of the universe.
5: He's been depressed. All of a sudden, he can't do anything.
3: Why are you depressed, Alvy? The
5: universe is expanding.
3: The universe is expanding?
5: Well, the universe is everything, and if it's expanding, someday it will break apart and that will be the end of everything. What is that
2: your business?
6: I'm Joel Achenbach, and I'm a science reporter for The Washington Post. The rate of that expansion of the universe is called the Hubble constant. No one has been able to ever nail down exactly what the constant is. It looked like the scientific community was coming up with a firm number. But what happened is the numbers didn't converge. The estimates by different techniques didn't converge. And they have two separate camps right now. And they can't figure out, well, has one camp made an error? Or is the disparity telling us something really important about the physics of the universe?
3: It could be pointing
1: us to some new physics, by which I mean it could be showing us that our understanding of the evolution of the universe is a little bit wrong in an interesting
6: way. In reporting this story, I talked to lots of astrophysicists and theorists, and among them was Katherine Mack, who is a professor at North Carolina State University, and she's an expert in explaining why we should care about this sort of thing.
1: It can affect how we understand the future evolution of the universe
6: sort of lurking out there is the question of what's the fate of the universe? What's going to happen to the whole shebang out there?
3: I think people are just genuinely interested in like, where's it all going to go? How's it all going to end? For
6: most of us, this is a really esoteric question. It doesn't affect us in our daily lives. But if you are a professional cosmologist, it's a big deal. It's the universe.
1: Joel Achenbach is a science reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow, Post Reports is doing a Takeover Tuesday on Instagram. If you follow the Wash Post Life account, we'll be posting updates throughout the day, shining a little light on how a show comes together behind the scenes and some of the personalities that make it happen. To check it out, follow at WashPostLife on Instagram. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.